Chapter Two of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ali Rose. David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology by James Orr. Chapter Two Life of Hume. 1. Till the publication of the treatise. The future philosopher was born on 26th April 1711, Old Style, quote, within the Tron Parish, end quote, of Edinburgh, where his parents must at the time have been residing. His father, Joseph Hume, or Home, was a border laird of modest means, but of a good family, claiming descent from Lord Home of Donglas, who crossed into France with the Douglas in the French wars of the 15th century, and lost his life properly at Vernouille, 1423-4. His mother, who, her son says, was, quote, a woman of singular merit, end quote, and for whom he always entertained the warmest affection, was a daughter of Sir David Falconer, president of the court session. The paternal estate was nine wells on the northern bank of the white adder in the parish of chernside in berwickshire the old plain mansion of which a picture is preserved in the chamber's book of days was situated on an elevation overlooking the river as it flowed to join the tweed and from the declivity in front issued a number of springs which gave the place its name Living was plain and tastes were simple, but the Scottish gentry at the time embraced many men of exceptional intelligence and culture, and the library which David found at Ninewells showed that his father must have belonged to that cultural class. Joseph Hume died while David was yet an infant, and he with an elder brother and sister were left to the care of their mother, who, though still, quote, young and handsome, end quote, devoted herself entirely to their upbringing. As the youngest son of the family, his patrimony was, necessarily as he tells us, quote, very slender, end quote. No details are preserved to us of David's sayings or doings in childhood or youth. The one stray reminiscence that floats down is a reputed saying of his mother's, quote, Are Davies a fine, good-natured crater, but uncommon weight-minded? End quote. Speculation has naturally been rife as to the meaning of this enigmatical utterance. The riddle is not perhaps, after all, very difficult to read. The quote, good nature end quote, of Hume was proverbial, though his biographer does well to remind us that he quote, was far from being that docile mass of impudibility which so large a portion of the world have taken him for. End quote. And with regard to the less complimentary part, it may be assumed, from what is known of Hume in after life, that he had abstracted ways, and would not readily impress himself on the observer in boyhood as of quick and observant. His forte was at no time the outward and practical. His reflections, besides from an early period, were not such as he would be disposed to communicate to others, or as others would easily apprehend. A youthful metaphysician, who before eighteen had his doubts of the reality of an external world, and was pondering whether, as Barry humorously puts it in Edinburgh Eleven, he himself existed, quote, strictly so called, end quote, might appear, quote, weak, end quote, enough to average, 
active-minded people about him, so Hume would keep his thoughts to himself and content himself with turning on company that good-natured but somewhat vacant expression which in manhood was noted as a feature of his appearance. As to exterior, we happen to know from his own pen that till the age of twenty he had not the plump, ruddy, healthful look of maturity, but was a, quote, tall, lean, raw-boned lad, end quote. A silence almost as complete as that which rests on his early days attaches to Hume's school life and to the period of his university attendance. It is known that he matriculated as an entrant in the class of Greek in Edinburgh University in 1723, at the age of twelve, but no other trace of his curriculum remains. We have it from himself that he, quote, passed through the ordinary course of education with success. End quote. And as he elsewhere indicates that quote, our college education in Scotland, extending little further than the languages, ends commonly when we are about fourteen or fifteen years of age, end quote, it may be presumed that this was the term of his attendance. Thereafter, he returned home, and it is the six or seven years that followed of his residence at Ninewells diversified by occasional visits to the city that we begin to see something directly of the workings of his mind and of the character of his ambitions it is still however only the growth of a mind we have to study for then as throughout life the merely external interested hume little all his biographers have observed how living in a region of much natural beauty and rich in romantic associations he seems to have looked on its scenes without emotion, and hardly allows a trace of its existence, much less of any impulse or impression received from it, to stray into his pages. Nature, indeed, in a way, he did appreciate. In one of his early letters, he speaks of the pleasure he found in, quote, an eclogue of Georgic of Virgil, end quote. But it is nature at second hand, nature as seen through the eyes and reflected in the descriptions of the poets that interested him not as stamping fresh impressions on his own soul nature as a virgil or a pope portrayed it not as a wordsworth would have felt it even then he values virgil less for the images he presents to his imagination than for the reflections he excites in his mind there is the same lack of interest in music painting and architecture for none of the plastic arts does he allow the slightest original appreciation and even in awarding the palm of merit in the higher kinds of poetry his judgments are often ludicrously astray one quality he does display is the instinct derived from long and close study of the operators for polished and flowing composition in prose the more remarkable on account of this indifference to the outward is the intensity and individuality of the reflective life which hume had already begun to develop the law had been fixed on as the profession most suitable for one of his industry and sobriety of mind but his own tastes did not in that least incline him to legal pursuits quote, while they fancied end quote, he says quote, I was poring upon Voet and Vinius, Cicero and Virgil were the authors I was secretly devouring. End quote. 
this taste did not arise from any inherent incapacity for legal studies but because his ambition had already from about his eighteenth year taken other and very definite directions quote, i was early seized end quote, he tells us in a passage formerly alluded to quote, with a passion for literature which has been the ruling passion of my life and the great source of my enjoyments End quote. But with this attachment to literature was combined a habit of philosophical reflection, which opened to him visions of conquest and distinction in the region of abstract thought. Three proofs remain to us of the singular development his mind was going through at this period, each fitted to awaken astonishment at the precocity, independence and maturity of judgment of a youth yet in his teens. The fact that none of the three was intended for the public eye gives them more value as mirrors of the state of his thoughts. The first of these evidences is a letter written to a friend, Michael Ramsey, of whom little is known save that he was Hume's lifelong correspondent. It is dated 7th July 1727, when Hume was yet scarcely more than sixteen. It is, however, already composed with deliberation and sententiousness, and pictures the writer as, quote, entirely confined, end quote, to himself and to the library at Ninewells for his, quote, diversion, end quote. He varies his reading, quote, sometimes a philosopher, sometimes a poet, end quote, and apparently finds his favourites in the Latin authors, as Cicero, Virgil, and Longinius. From the two former he derives the ideal of a life independent of fortune, which pretty much remained with him to the end. Quote, the philosopher's wise man and the poet's husband man, end quote, he says. Quote, agree in peace of mind, in a liberty and independency on fortune, and a contempt for riches, power, and glory. Everything is placid and quiet in both, nothing perturbed or disordered. End quote. He is well content with his present mode of existence. Quote, I live like a king, pretty much by myself, neither full of action nor perpetration, mulls somnos, end quote, and only fears his happiness may not continue. The panacea against the blows of fortune is to be sought in philosophy, and here we touch on the quick of his thought. Quote, this greatness and elevation of soul, end quote, he says, quote, is to be found only in study and contemplation. This alone can teach us to look down on human accidents. You must allow me to talk this, like a philosopher. Tis a subject I think much on, and could talk all day long of, end quote. There is another still more characteristic passage on the nature of his studies which deserves special attention. Quote, Would you have me send in my loose incorrect thoughts? Were such worth the transcribing? All the progress I have made is but drawing the outlines on loose bits of paper. Here a hint of a passion. There a phenomenon in the mind accounted for. In another, the alteration of these accounts. Sometimes a remark upon an author I have been reading, and none of them worth to anybody, and I believe scarcely to myself. 
end quote. In these, quote, hints, end quote, of a passion and, quote, accountings, end quote, for phenomena in the mind of this singular 16-year-old philosopher, it is not too much to say that we have the first germs of the future treatise. Next to be referred to is an, quote, historical essay on chivalry and modern honour, end quote, which, if it really belongs, as Mr Burton thinks, to this youthful period, is a remarkable early anticipation of Hume's later essay style, and a striking evidence of the power he had already attained of looking at historical subjects from an independent point of view. It excellently illustrates his method of seeking an explanation of historical phenomena by tracing them to general principles in human nature, but is not less typical of his habit of finding his means of explanation in principles the least rational and commendable. As at a later stage we find him accounting for the growth of monotheism out of polytheism through the tendency to vulgar flattery. So in this initial attempt he finds the key to chivalry, quote, that monster of romantic chivalry or knight errantry, end quote, as he calls it, in a propensity of the mind, quote, when smit with any idea of merit or perfection beyond that which faculties can attain, end quote, to create an imaginary world in which it pleases itself with the fancy of an excellence which does not exist. In the course of the essay, he contrasts Greek with Gothic architecture. The former, quote, plain, simple and regular, but withal majestic and beautiful, end quote. The latter, quote, a heap of confusion and irregularity, end quote. An evidence of, quote, what kind of monstrous birth this of chivalry must prove, end quote. Of much greater importance, as a clue to Hume's youthful feelings and aims, is the third paper, a sketch of his mental history contained in a letter to a London physician, believed to be Dr George Chain, whom he desired to consult in a crisis of his health. It is doubtful if this mysterious epistle, found neatly written out amongst his papers, was ever really sent. In belongs, in any case, to the year 1734. Hume was now 23 years of age, but the letter goes back on his whole life and gives a sort of confidential account of his mental development from the beginning. First, he recounts the joy he had felt after his abandonment of law, at the thought of pushing his fortune in the world as a scholar and philosopher. This lasted till about September 1729, when a sudden chill fell upon his spirits. Quote, All my ardour, end quote, he says, quote, seemed in a moment to be extinguished, and I could no longer raise my mind to that pitch which formerly gave me such excessive pleasure. End quote. His recluse life and intense application to study had, it is evident, affected both mind and body, and though by the use of remedies and exercise his strength was gradually restored, so that, as he tells us from being, quote, tall and lean, end quote, he suddenly blossomed out into, quote, the most sturdy, robust, healthful-like fellow you have seen, end quote. 
the inability for sustained and severe mental work remained. This sense of frustrated effort he describes as, quote, such a miserable disappointment I scarce ever remember to have heard of, end quote. Quote, here, end quote, he characteristically declares, quote, lay my greatest calamity. I had no hope of delivering my opinions with such elegance and neatness as to draw on me the attention of the world, and I would rather live and die in obscurity than produce them maimed and imperfect. End quote. He asked the advice of the physician and intimates his intention of entering the employment of a merchant in Bristol, of which more anon. What further relates to Hume's health may be left aside to look at the remarkable revelations the letter gives of his mental occupations and plans. These are of a nature to dispel any idea of frivolity that might be suggested by his scepticism and to deepen the impression of sincerity and purpose in his thought and life. Here is how he describes what may be called his mental awakening. Quote, I was after that, returned from college, left to my own choice in my reading, and found it incline me most equally to books of reasoning and philosophy, and to poetry and the polite authors. Every one who is acquainted either with the philosophers or critics knows that there is nothing yet established in either of these two sciences, and that they contain little more than endless disputes even in the most fundamental articles. Upon examination of these, I found a certain boldness of temper growing in me, which was not inclined to submit to any authority in these subjects, but led me to seek out some new medium by which truth might be established. After much study and reflection on this, at last, when I was about eighteen years of age, there seemed to be opened up to me a new scene of thought, which transported me beyond measure and made me, with an ardour natural to young men, throw up every other pleasure or business to apply entirely to it. End quote. Then ensued the collapse above referred to, in connection with which we have other interesting glimpses of the kind of thoughts that occupied him. The principal passage, however, is the following which may be said to furnish the programme of his whole life work in philosophy. Quote, Having now time and leisure to cool my inflamed imagination, I began to consider seriously how I should proceed in my philosophical inquiries. I found that the moral philosophy transmitted to us by antiquity laboured under the same inconvenience that had been found in their natural philosophy, of being entirely hypothetical and demanding more on invention than experience. Every one consulted his fancy in erecting schemes of virtue and happiness without regarding human nature upon which every moral conclusion must depend. This, therefore, I resolved to make my principal study and the source from which I would derive every truth in criticism as well as morality. I believe it is a certain fact that most of the philosophers who have gone before us have been overthrown by the greatness of their genius, 
and that little more is required to make a man succeed in the study than to throw off all prejudice either for his own opinions or for those of others at least this is all i have to depend on for the truth of my reasonings which i have multiplied to such a degree that within these three years i have scribbled many a choir of paper in which there is nothing contained but my own inventions this with the reading most of these celebrated books in latin french and english and acquiring the italian you may think a sufficient business for one in perfect health and so it would had it been done to any purpose but my disease was a cruel encumbrance to me these paragraphs enable us to appreciate the truth of mr burton's judgment on hume quote, he was an economist of all his talents from early youth no memoir of a literary man presents a more cautious and vigilant husbandry of the mental powers and acquirements End quote. and to understand a later sentence of the same writer with reference to essays moral and political quote, it is into the stoic that the writer has thrown most of his heart and sympathy and it is in that sketch that though probably without intention some of the features of his own character are portrayed End quote. one outcome of hume's anxieties on the state of his health was the conviction that his quote, distemper end quote, was partially due to his sedentary mode of life and that it would be to his advantage to lay aside his studies for a time and try the effect of a more active career the difficulty he felt in carrying out his schemes with his quote, very slender income end quote, fortified his resolve he had as he informs the physician obtained a recommendation to quote, a very considerable trader end quote, in bristol and he now entered the employment of this gentleman and continued for some time in his service it was by no means unusual in that age for younger sons of good families to eke out their scanty means of livelihood in trade but in hume's case the experiment was eminently unsuccessful the merchant like hume's mother not improbably thought his new assistant quote, uncommon wake-minded in the duties of his office and it is not surprising that hume himself his head more occupied with the genesis of ideas than with the prices and qualities of goods, after a short trial, threw up his situation, and resolved that, come what might, he would confine himself to the line of occupation for which nature had more obviously fitted him. Quote, I went over to France, end quote, he says briefly, quote, with a view of prosecuting my studies in a country retreat and i then laid that plan of life which i have steadily and successfully pursued i resolved to make a very rigid frugality supply my deficiency of fortune to maintain unimpaired my independence and to regard every object as contemptible except the improvement of my talents in literature the sojourn to france to which allusion is here made was a very eventful period in hume's life it was during his three years residence in that country from seventeen thirty four to seventeen thirty seven that the treatise of human nature was composed after a brief stay in paris he spent some months in the ancient town of rheims then took up his abode for two years at la fleche where 
was the Jesuits' college at which, a century and a quarter earlier, the philosopher Descartes had been educated. In these retreats, Hume passed his days, quote, very agreeably, end quote, but, as one gathers from a letter to his friend Ramsay, filled with acute remarks on the contrast of French and English manners, also very observantly. A feature of some interest in this French sojourn is its bearing on the future essay on miracles. When Hume passed through Paris, the city was still stirred on the subject of the alleged miracles at the tomb of the Abbé de Paris, which two years before, 1732, had caused great commotion and had been the subject of prolonged investigation and debate. These miracles, readers of the essay will remember, furnished Hume with not the least serviceable part of his material for his argument. Then, as he himself relates in a letter to Principal Campbell, it was while at La Fleche during a walk with a Jesuit in the cloisters of the college that the idea of the argument itself was suggested to him. Quote, as my head was full, end quote, he says, quote, of the topics of my treatise of human nature, which I was at the time composing, this argument immediately occurred to me, and I thought it very much graveled my companion. But at last he observed to me that it was impossible for that argument to have any solidarity, because it operated equally against the gospel as against the Catholic miracles, which observation I thought proper to admit was a sufficient answer." End quote. The irony of the last sentence is a trait in Hume's styles which we shall afterwards have abundant examples. It would appear that either then or soon after he had reduced his argument to shape and intended publishing it as part of the treatise. But prudential reasons, as he avows, held him back. He writes on 2nd December 1737 to Henry Home, afterwards Lord Cams, quote, I enclose some reasonings concerning miracles, which I once thought of publishing with the rest, but which I am afraid will give too much offence, even as the world is disposed at present. End quote. On his arrival in London, it was Hume's first business to arrange for the publication of his now completed book. It was a daring step for a young man of twenty six to enter the field of authorship with a work at once so novel and so difficult. But Hume was conscious of the enormous pains he had bestowed on the elaboration of his thoughts. He knew that into this book he had put the best part of himself, the whole force and originality of his mind, and he rightly judged that by his success or failure in this attempt his reputation as a philosopher must stand or fall. No one will now question that into the treatise Hume has concentrated everything of real value he had to offer in metaphysics and morals, that later works may popularise and polish, but add nothing to the essential content of this earlier effort. It has already been seen how incessantly for years his thoughts had been engrossed with his great project. Now that the time had come for the realisation of his expectations, the tension of his feeling was naturally very great. During the months that negotiations were proceeding with the booksellers, he was unwearily engaged in improving the style and diction of his work. 
He was anxious to have the opinion of others on its merits, and was furnished by Henry Home with an introduction to Bishop Butler, whose analogy had been published the year before, but Butler, to his disappointment, was in the country. Quote, my own opinion, end quote, he declares, quote, I dare not trust to, both because it concerns myself and because it is so variable that I know not how to fix it. Sometimes it elevates me above the clouds, at other times it depresses me with doubts and fears, so that whatever be my success, I cannot be entirely disappointed. End quote. One other confession he makes, also having reference to the introduction to Butler, which produces less favourable impression, quote, I am, end quote, he says, quote, at present castrating my work, that is cutting off its nobler parts, that is endeavouring it shall give as little offence as possible, before which I could not pretend to put it into the doctor's hands. This is a piece of cowardice for which I blame myself, though I believe none of my friends will blame me, but... I was resolved not to be an enthusiast in philosophy while I was blaming other enthusiasms. End quote. Whether the parts thus exercised were resorted before publication cannot be confirmed, but apart from the reasonings on miracles, it may be presumed that they were. In these preliminaries, about a year passed by, and it was not until the 26th of September, 1738, that a contract was finally framed between Hume and John Noon, bookseller of Cheapside, by which the latter bound himself to pay the former £50 with 12 copies of the book for the sole right of printing and publishing the first edition, not to exceed 1,000 copies. The transaction was, as Mr Burton says, quote, on the whole creditable to the discernment and liberality of Mr Noon, end quote. When one reflects that the author was yet young and unknown, that the book was of a kind not adapted to attract the public attention, but more likely to be denounced as a farrago of metaphysical conceits, and that tested by the value of money in these days, fifty pounds was a considerable sum. The bargain may be called exceedingly generous. This too was probably the opinion of the bookseller himself, when, after the publication of the two volumes containing the first and second book of the treatise, in 1739, he discovered that, so far from arousing the interest or exciting the opposition Hume had anticipated, the work had practically no sale whatever. Hume's own succinct account of the matter is, quote, Never literary attempt was more unfortunate than my treatise of human nature. It fell dead-born from the press, without reaching such distinction as even to excite a murmur among the zealots." End quote. The book was published anonymously, a circumstance which may have helped to doom it to obscurity. The work, in reality, was before its time. The taste capable of appreciating it and living interest in the questions it discussed were, in Scotland at least, only beginning to be developed. Half a century later, it might have had a different reception. There is no doubt that, meanwhile, Hume was keenly disappointed, though the result did not shake his faith in the merits of the book, but only his confidence in the discernment of the public and in the wisdom of his method of presenting doctrines so abstract and unusual. 
within a fortnight of the date of publication he saw that the success of the book was doubtful quote, i am afraid end quote, he says quote, twill remain so very long those who are accustomed to reflect on such abstract subjects are commonly full of prejudices and those who are unprejudiced are unacquainted with metaphysical reasonings my principles are also so remote from all the vulgar sentiments on the subjects that were they to take place they would produce an almost total revolution in philosophy and you know revolutions of this kind are not easily brought about end quote. while from nine wells to which soon after he returned to await developments he wrote on first june to henry home quote, i am not much in the humour of such comparisons at present having received news from london of the success of my philosophy which is but indifferent if i may judge by the sale of the book and if i may believe my bookseller i am now out of humour with myself but doubt not in a little time to be only out of humour with the world like other unsuccessful authors after all i am sensible of my folly in entertaining any discontent much more despair upon the account since i could not expect any better from such abstract reasonings nor indeed did i promise myself much better my fondness for what i imagined my discoveries made me overlook all common rules of prudence and having enjoyed the usual satisfaction of projectors tis but just i should meet with their disappointment End quote. the treatise did not indeed pass altogether unnoticed a long review of the work written in a spirit of raillery at hume's paradoxes but ending with a handsome acknowledgment of the quote, incontestable marks of a great capacity end quote, and of quote, a soaring genius end quote, in the author appeared in the november issue of the periodical of the day the history of the works of the learned still from an observation made long afterwards seventeen forty eight to nine by his bookseller mr a miller to hume that his former publications quote, all but the unfortunate treatise end quote, were beginning to be the subject of conversations we may gather that hume did not exaggerate in speaking of his book falling quote, dead born from the press end quote. the examination of the principles of the work ushered into the world in these discouraging circumstances belongs to later chapters it is only necessary to indicate here in a few sentences its general character and aim in its complete form the treatise consists of three books the first treating quote, of the understanding end quote, the second quote, of the passions end quote, and the third quote, of morals end quote. the volumes published in seventeen thirty nine comprised the first and second of these books and it is in the book dealing with the understanding that the really vital part of hume's system lies the treatment as the author acknowledges is throughout highly abstract and is an even greater disadvantage is unmethodical and desultory in its exposition of its various topics but these faults are mainly on the surface in the thoughts which compose it the work is powerfully and compactly one 
While the style has a vigour and cohesion with the idea to which a touch of ruggedness only lends additional strength, its spirit and purpose are best illustrated by quoting from its own pages. Hume opens with a vindication of the right of metaphysical inquiry, not easily reconcilable with his later sentiments on the advantages of an quote, easy and obvious end quote, philosophy. Quote, Nothing but the most determined scepticism along with a great degree of indolence, can justify this aversion to metaphysics. For if truth be all that within the reach of human capacity, it is certain that it must lie very deep and abstruse. And to hope, we shall arrive at it without pains, while the great geniuses have failed with the utmost pains. We must certainly be esteemed sufficiently vain and presumptuous. I pretend to no such advantage in the philosophy I am going to unfold that it would esteem it a strong presumption against it, were it so very easy and obvious. End quote. His method is announced in the following passage quote, Here then is the only expedient from which we can hope for success in our philosophical researches to leave the lingering tedious method which we have hitherto followed and instead of taking now and then a castle or village on the frontier to march up directly to the capital or centre of these sciences to human nature itself which being once masters of we may everywhere else hope for an easy victory in pretending therefore to explain the principles of human nature we in effect propose a complete system of the sciences built on a foundation almost entirely new and the only one on which they can stand with any security. And as the science of man is the only solid foundation for the other sciences, so the only solid foundation we can give to this science itself must be laid on experience and observation." End quote. Human nature, then, we find, is the subject of Hume's investigation, and his method is defined to be the experimental. Already, we can perceive the boldness of his enterprise and the revolutionary character of the conceptions he proposes to expound. End of chapter 2